we have two scenarios. We're going to be looking at the Jewish trials and Peter's denials. Um, one would consider it a religious trial and then the public trial. But in the process, there are many lessons woven into this text. Not just information as far as you know how it all went down, but I think there are opportunities in many ways for transformation. You know, we're all called to take up our cross and follow him. And the Lord shows us how. He shows us how to deny ourselves. He shows us how to go that route. And, and when we do, we're going to see that there's victory. Our struggles uh, in life, all of them, every single one of them, have to do with the fact that we won't you know, go to the cross. We won't deny ourselves. We have a hard time uh, being quiet when we should be. We have a hard time submitting to the will of God when it conflicts with our own. And so just watching Jesus die, watching him go to the cross, first of all, it just brings gratitude to my heart that he would do that for me. But then I also see him, and I see the way that he did it in such a humble way, and it really it has an effect in which I want to do the same. You know, that's what the Lord meant. He said, if anyone wants to Come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so we're going to learn lessons even in that as far as how God wants us to take up our cross. But, but look what we read here in Mark 14. We see, first of all, uh, just kind of the, the scenario is painted. In verse 53, it says, And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. So there's the, the trials. But in verse 54, Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. And so we kind of have two verses that are going to set up this whole section for us, the, the Jewish trials and, and Peter's denials. Now, it's good to know the chronology of things. You know, when Jesus was betrayed, arrested, and led away, uh, it was probably just a little after midnight Friday morning. And uh, when you look at what happened at the end of the morning, we're going to see Jesus would be dragged through three Jewish trials and three Roman trials, okay? And so he was brought first to Annas. Uh, we'll see that in John chapter 18. He was the former high priest. And again, way before dawn, way before the rooster crowed. I mean, this is uh, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. And, and then he was taken to Caiaphas. That was the current high priest and a portion of the Sanhedrin, which was the equivalent of our Supreme Court. So he's taken to Annas. He's taken to Caiaphas. And all that happens before dawn, and then in the wee hours of the morning, because remember, Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m., so in the wee hours of the morning, he was then taken to the temple precincts, and he stood before the Sanhedrin, where they gave him the final and formal condemnation. And so we see in John 18, 13, it says, and they led Jesus away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. You know, and it's interesting, when you study this guy, Annas, according to Jewish history, Annas, the one that he was taken to first, 
he was a high priest for probably around seven years. Uh, that position was later filled by his five sons, his son-in-law and his grandson. And so this position of Jewish power, which in one sense might be considered the president of Israel, in one sense, it, was, it never went far from his family. You know, in all reality, they say he enjoyed all the dignity of the office and all its influence since he was able to promote those most closely connected to him. And so word on the street is that they acted publicly, but he, Annas, really directed the affairs. And the interesting thing is that there's probably more uh, history about Annas than any other Jewish figure in the Bible. And so we know a lot about this guy. He had amassed enormous wealth from the temple booths. You remember when the, uh, the Lord went into the temple and he drove out the money changers and he drove out those who sold uh, the sacrifices because they were gorging the people and they were hiking up the price? All that money was going to Annas. And so when Jesus drove him out, that's you know, hitting him in the money belt. That's hitting Annas in a place, you know how it is. I mean, and so this guy from day one wanted Jesus out of the picture. He wanted him dead. In John chapter two, Jesus drove out the money changers at the beginning of his public ministry, and he did it again at, at the end. And so just kind of knowing, okay, first he went to Annas, and we kind of know a little bit about what this guy thinks of Jesus. And then he goes to Caiaphas, and uh, both places he goes to their residence or their palace, and we'll read that today in Mark. And then later, after this, we're going to see he goes and is formally condemned before the Sanhedrin. Now, one other thing before we dive in, I think it's important for us to know that so much of these trials were completely illegal. They were illegal according to the Jewish Mishnah, okay? Now, the Mishnah, in case you didn't know, the Orthodox Jews believe that Moses received the first five books of the Bible and God gave them to him and he wrote them all down. But the Orthodox Jews also believe that Moses received the Mishnah from God. It was verbally communicated to Moses and then he verbally communicated it to generation and then they communicated to generation after them and generation after them. And so that is what you know we call the Mishnah. It wasn't written down until many, many years later, but for generations, it was the law, although it was the oral law. Now, you guys probably know, and for those of you who have read the Old Testament, the justice of God that is articulated in the scriptures is amazing. It really is. You know, and so you're gonna even see it today in some of the things that they violated in the trials of Jesus Christ. There are many things about the trials that were illegal. According to the Mishnah, capital cases were to be held during the day and not the night. And so if there was anyone who, you know, they wanted to give someone the death sentence, um, the Jews couldn't perform it, but they could, you know, come to that verdict. So if it was ever a capital case, it had to take place during the day and not the night. The verdict in capital cases had to be reached during the day, not the night. And we're gonna see that Jesus was condemned twice at night, first at the house of Annas and then at the house of Caiaphas. Capital cases were to begin with reasons for acquittal 
and we're not permitted to begin with reasons for conviction. And so imagine you go to court. This is how important justice was to God, that he said, if you're ever you know, looking for the death sentence, then when you go to court, I want you to start it off with reasons. Give me some reasons why we, we could let him go. That was according to the Mishnah. In, in, in capital cases, a verdict of acquittal, uh, not guilty, was allowed to be reached on the same day, but a verdict of conviction wasn't, not until the following day, because this would give them time to think this over. I mean, you're putting someone to death. And then you look at this, and you're like, wow, the Lord, he's so just, he's so wise. I mean, but they were violating all these laws. The court was forbidden to meet on any of the great feasts, and here they are meeting on the Passover and unleavened bread. And if the verdict was a verdict of death, a night was required to lapse before the death sentence was actually carried out. Again, so that they could make sure that they're being just. Uh, Jewish law said that the high priest was forbidden to ask a leading question, which is exactly what Caiaphas did, and it also forbade anyone to ask questions in which the person on trial could incriminate himself. Now, this is interesting. And we don't do that in our justice system. See, for them, it was, it was like, I need witnesses. That's what God was saying. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, then you could put someone to death. You see, all these laws were passed over by these religious leaders. And so you're going to see that as we go through here. Look, look what we read in verse 55. It says, Now the, the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Notice that's their goal. But they found none. If you would, go back for a second to chapter 14, verse 1. And, and you see how it all started in Mark 14, verse 1. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. And so, you know, there's no fairness to this. There's no justice to this, right? They just are looking for a reason uh, to kill him. Ultimately, we see Pilate understood the real reason that they crucified Christ was because of envy, they were envious of him, that he was taking away their crowds. It's just a terrible thing. And so, anyways, you're back in, in Mark 14, again in verse 55, the chief priests and all the council they sought, they were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. And then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, well, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. You know, we see the intention in verse 55. They weren't really gathered together for justice. They were gathered together for murder, and they called some as witnesses, but their testimonies uh, didn't agree. We read that in verse 56. Now there in verse uh, 57 and 58, they, they have this 
quote from Jesus, but they, they misquoted him from John chapter 2. Remember when Jesus had cleansed the temple and, you know, and they, they said, hey, what sign do you give to us to show us that what you're doing is, uh, you know, from God? I mean, you know, you're, you're doing some pretty heavy stuff. And Jesus said, uh, this is the sign in John chapter 2, verse 18 and 21, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. Now, of course, the Lord was talking about his body, but they misquoted him. I mean, they added to the testimony. They said, well, we heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with hands. That's the, 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 the Jewish temple, the, the, the Herod's temple. Now, that would be punishable by death if anyone threatened to destroy the temple of Herod, but that's not what Jesus said. And so all this, what is the gospel writer trying to communicate to us? Is that, that the Lord, you know, was blameless. That, that really there was no fault. Pilate would see the same thing later. You know, one thing about the enemy is that he can hurl accusations against us over and over and over again. You know, but for us, it doesn't mean that we're guilty. It doesn't mean that they're guilty you know, one of the things that I came away with in this, and again, there's a lot of application, but I do encourage you, always be fair. You might hate somebody, but, you know, and you, you, know, you hear the, the gossip or you hear the juicy, juicy about them, you know, and whatever, you condemn them. You know, that's not fair. That's not fair. That's not just. And Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you? But, but he requires justice and mercy and to walk humbly with our God. I mean, we see what these religious, Jewish religious leaders were doing, and, and it wasn't fair, and it wasn't just. You know, according to the Gospel of John, Caiaphas, the high priest, had already determined weeks ago that Jesus would die. We read that in John eleven forty nine through 52. And so, basically, the illegal assembly and testimony only proved that Jesus was blameless. The high priest saw that, and so he decided to take matters into his own hands. In verse 60, it says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. You know, and as I was reading that, Jesus here speaks what we'll see during this whole trial and during the whole torture. Jesus speaks very little throughout his six trials. Um, he had the same, you know, experience with Pilate. And when he went before Herod, he didn't say anything, nothing. And, and when you're, if you're looking for maybe a way to die to self, try it. <laughs> Try it. You know, when someone comes against you or someone says something to you or someone accuses you of something or someone wants to get rid of you, you know, just give it to God. You know, when I see this right here, the Bible prophesied Jesus would be quiet in Isaiah 53, verse 7. Remember, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Through all the trials and even the torture, he spoke very, very little. And when I look at the Lord, and this is very practical, 
I just see, you know what? He's not like us, huh? We're not like him. I'm just speaking for myself. Maybe some of you can identify with this. I think we talk too much, and we trust our father too little. You know, we defend ourselves with many words. We, you know, whimper and whine. We cry and complain. You know, Jesus was, was blameless. And Jesus was silent. And not all silence is good, just in case you're here and you're like, okay, that's good for me. Not all silence is good, but some silence is good. There's a Jewish proverb that says, eloquent silence often is better than eloquent speech. You know, as the Lord leads you, there's a Bulgarian proverb that says, silence irritates the devil. You know, because he wants you to to lash lash back. He wants you to retaliate. He wants to strike up a fire, right? And, and so Jesus' silence, it really sent a message of innocence, and it was obvious. But there's another saying that says, he who doesn't understand your silence will probably not understand your words. And, and really, there's another lesson here, and, I, and I'll tell you, I, I think this is true. If God is speaking to you, and you won't listen to him, you know, he might not speak again. I mean, he's gracious and he's kind. But this is what I would say. Do what God tells you to do. Listen to him. He's not obligated to, to, to speak to us over and over and over again. You know, that's exactly what happened to Herod. You know, to me, when I think of that, I think, wow, that's scary. You know, but here we see, I think the heart of it has to do primarily with his humility. And so, you know, the high priest, he sees what's going on. In, in, in the Greek language, uh, it literally says, you're gonna speak, right? You're gonna speak. And in the, in the Greek language, he's asking him over and over and over again. Notice what we read next. And there again is 61, but he kept silent and answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the others struck him with the palms of their hands. I, I mentioned to you earlier, according to the Mishnah, and you can look it up online, it's a pretty uh, amazing document, but according to the Mishnah, it was illegal for the high priest or you know, the judge, so to speak, to ask a leading question. It was also illegal for Jesus to be asked a question that would be self-incriminating. Like I mentioned earlier, witnesses were required. It was illegal to meet at night. It was illegal to reach a death sentence in a day or, or, or one day or at night. But it, that, they were not interested in that. There was no righteousness here whatsoever. And, and so he's pushing it. He's pushing the Lord Right, right there, that word asked, again, um, when the high priest asked him in verse uh, 60, um, 
uh, verse 61, when he asked him, that word in the Greek language is in the imperfect tense, okay? And that helps to know because what that literally means is he kept on asking. The imperfect tense generally represents continued or repeated action. Present tense would say he is asking. Imperfect tense, which is this Greek right here, meant that he kept on asking him, tell us, tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed one? And, he, and the Lord at first wasn't saying anything, wasn't saying anything, wasn't saying anything until finally, what did he do? He spoke the truth. He said, it is as you say. Eventually, Jesus spoke when they broke all the laws and it just came down to the truth of who he really was. And, and the bottom line is they couldn't handle the truth. He affirmed that he was the Christ, that he was the son of the blessed, meaning he was the son of God. He was the son of man. That was his favorite title for himself, showing you his humility. And he revealed to them that he would be one day seated at the right hand of God. And what he's basically saying to them that he's coming again in the clouds, the Shekinah glory of God, is that he would come as judge to judge, you know, these judges. And the high priest responded by breaking the law again. It was illegal for him to tear his clothes. He didn't anyways. They didn't care, right? I mean, he just, it's just crazy when you look at this at the end of the day because Jesus is simply speaking the truth, identifying to him, to us, to everyone who reads the word that this is who he is. You know, the high priest really had no excuse. Why? Because Jesus had proven who he was. It's interesting. If you read John 5, 31 through 40, there's a fourfold witness there. Uh, you know, and when you look at the evidence demonstrated in, in the Lord's life, you know, it was in the courts of life where he was there proving to them all these things, speaking the greatest words ever spoken, you know, doing the greatest works ever done. I mean, they had the testimony of John the Baptist, and everyone knew he was a prophet. They even had the testimony of the Father, Jesus said in John 5, 37, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. But you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. What is he saying? They were ignoring the Father. I mean, the Father is speaking, the Spirit is speaking, John is speaking, his words are speaking, his works are speaking. He was proving to them who he was. But they ignored his voice and they closed their eyes to all the evidence. I mean, that doesn't even include the prophetic scriptures that point to Christ or his own testimony of himself. When they asked him who he was, he said, I am. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And they all took up stones to throw on him, remember, in John chapter 8 and John chapter 10, because he was claiming to be God. It didn't matter. They, they weren't listening. They weren't open. Their hearts were hard, and their minds were made up. And so what did they do? They began to spit on him. You know, that's a prophecy in Isaiah 50, verse 6, where the Messiah said, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I, I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. You know, they, they blindfolded him and they beat him. Right here it says they, they told him to prophesy, but Matthew tells us, they said, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? And so 
you know, imagine that, you know, pulling out the beard, spitting on his face, you know, and then putting a, a blindfold over him and then striking him. You know, prophesy to us, tell us who hit you that time. And of course we know he could have told them their names and, and everything they did in their whole life. But this is what our Lord did when he died. And, I, and again, he died for our sins, but we have to die for our, to ourselves. And sometimes it hurts. You know, when we read about him in this section, the rabbis actually believe that they could do this to one who claimed to be Christ because according to Isaiah 11, 2 through 4, that the, the Messiah would be able to see, um, not with these eyes, but with the eyes of his heart. And so it's interesting when you read the Babylonian Talmud, it says this reflects a traditional test of messianic status based on the rabbinic tradition of Isaiah 11, 2 through 4. They believed the true Messiah could judge matters without the benefit of uh, sight. And so you read Isaiah 11, verse 3, it, it really does kind of look that way. And so that's what, you know, some say that's the reason they were doing what they did. But um, I think it was just pure uh, violence and hatred. I mean, you guys probably know the way that we're wired is amazing. I don't know, how many of you have ever been in a fight? You guys ever been in a fight where someone punched you? You guys are all good people, you never have. You know, but you know, they, I don't know, Pastor Chuck, I was listening to Pastor Chuck on this, and he was just saying that the way that the Lord made us is that we're, if we're in a fight and a punch starts coming, even, you know, sometimes when we're not the best fighters, there's still something within us that's able to brace ourselves for the blow. But Jesus wasn't able to do that because he just couldn't see, you know, when the blow was coming. Pastor Chuck went on to say that quarterbacks get hurt when they get blindsided. You know, usually even a quarterback, is usually it may be a little smaller. You got this big 275-pound guy tackling him. You know, he usually bounces back because there's part of him that's able to, you know, get ready for the hit. But when they're, when they're completely blindsided, that's when they get hurt. See, that, that's what our Lord went through for us. And so when you consider the pain of not being able to brace yourself for the beating, um, man, I look at this, and I don't know about you, but I'm just like, man, I just, I just to me, and I think it's good, especially as Christians, to, to be angry with injustice and to be angry when someone, anyone would be treated like this, especially God. And so you might be here, and a lot of people throughout church history, and I'm not just blowing steam, a lot of people throughout church, church history are angry with the Jews. Did you guys know that? They would take it out on the Jews. I can't believe they would do such a thing, right? But, but here's the thing. And, you know, if we're upset with the Jewish religious leaders and then, you know, maybe with the Romans as they condemn Jesus, um, here's the thing. Even though this all went down as we're reading it here and we need this information, I think it's good to know history we also need to know our responsibility in this. Why did Jesus go through this? Why did Jesus have to die? Is it because of the Jews? No. You guys know, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, the gospel. Paul said, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. 
That's why he died. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep, we've gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every sin, every sin, past, present, future, all those things that we do, they were laid on him. And I've mentioned this to you before, but, you know, before I was a Christian, I committed murder. I condemned him. I killed him. I killed God. It wasn't just Judas' betrayal or the Jewish mockery of a trial. It was me. Really, it wasn't only the Romans or the punishment of Pontius Pilate. It was me. He died for, for me, for my sins. Christ was nailed to the cross because of my pride, my selfishness, and my rebellion. And I, and I think it's just good for us as we're looking at this and we're seeing what he's going through to identify with this whole process as well. If you're honest, you'll admit you killed God too. Now, thank God he didn't stay dead or we'd all be in big trouble. But as we study this, I think it's important to admit our part in the pain. I love what John Stott said. It was stunning. He said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. And so as we go through this, I pray that we would have that heart and learn from the Jewish trials. I also pray we would learn from Peter's denials. Now we read back in 54 again that Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the, of the high priest and he sat with the servants and, and warmed himself at the fire. You know, we, we read that he warmed himself at the fire. Again, not a friendly fire. This is where the non-believers were gathered. So he's following at a distance. He's hanging out with non-believers We've already seen as we studied the life of Peter that he was sleeping when he should have been praying, that he downplayed Jesus' warning in which, you know, the Lord revealed to him that Satan has asked for you to sift you as wheat. But Peter said in Matthew 26, 35, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the, the disciples. You know, Peter was overconfident, Right? And it's a warning to us all. I wonder, do you guys all walk in that humility? Do, do I walk in that humility? You know, when you see Christians no longer going to church, no longer reading their Bibles, no longer praying, no longer treating their wife right, their husband right, their children right, no, no longer you know, working at work the way they should. I mean, there's just so many things in which it manifests itself and you know it's like that's not really how Christians are you know what is it you know why is it and I always think man these pastors that have been blessed these guys that have been given so much grace why would they have an affair why would they do that to their wife to the church to the family you know, and then there's that part of you as a pastor that say, I would never do that. But then the Lord says, well, be careful, Manny. I mean, I, I, I appreciate your heart, that you, you're saying your heart, you, you would never do that, but, but are you beyond temptation? 
None of us are. You know, if I see a girl and I'm going to the mall or whatever, I'm at the mall and I see a, a girl, I won't say pretty, I'll just see, I just say I see a girl. You know, there's only one pretty girl in the world. That's my wife, okay, but, <laughs> and my daughter. But, um, you know, like right away, you know, this is my practice. I just look away, my eyes bounce, and I always um, pray this prayer, Lord, lead me not into temptation. I pray that prayer because I, I believe with all my heart that I should because if the Lord told me to pray that, and who knows, maybe one day I might be in a situation that I can't handle it. I don't want to do that. I don't want to deny the Lord. I don't want to fall. You know, there's some people, they go to church, you know, and, and, and they don't, they come every once in a while. I don't understand that. I don't understand, you know, and I think like a lot of times what happens in church is people are looking for excuses not to go. I have this conviction that we should be in here at least once a week or, or more, but, you know, you take a Sunday off and you find out, hey, you know what, I had a good time at the beach today. You know, you take another Sunday off and, you know, you're eating the buffet over there at that restaurant because some Sunday's morning special. Next thing you know, what are you doing? You're following God at a distance. Now, some people come to church and they don't come again. And then, you know, three weeks later, they're like, well, no one ever called me. I, I don't know. You're like expecting the pastor to call you. Here's what I would say to you. Make friends with somebody. Make friends with somebody. Whatever you do, don't come in by yourself and then leave by yourself. Make friends with somebody and just say, if you don't see me at church, will you check on me to make sure I'm not backslidden or something? Because, you know, we, a lot of times, we don't have everyone's number. We don't really notice because the church is growing. But make yourself accountable so that you're not overconfident because maybe you haven't been praying. Next thing you know, you're following the Lord at a distance and Next thing you know, you're warming yourself by the enemy's fire. You know, we see that's exactly what happened to Peter because he was overconfident. I want to go to heaven when I die. I want to abide in Christ. I want to do everything that God wants me to do as a Christian. I don't want to take time off. I don't want to go backwards. I always want to grow. And so we have to learn from Peter. You know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so we're all vulnerable. Unfortunately, Peter didn't take heed. And so we read in verse 66, Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. And he went out on the porch and, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. 
And then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. And then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, I mean, it just hit him. The Bible says he wept. You know, and you look at this, Again, this is just amazing, you know, things to learn. You know, Peter didn't just deny being one of the disciples. I mean, he denied knowing Jesus. And he didn't just do it once. He didn't just do it twice. I mean, three times kind of sealed the deal. There's something about the number three. You know, by the testimony of three witnesses, every word would be established uh, Peter even cursed and swore, basically putting himself under oath, which meant that he pronounced judgment upon himself if what he was saying wasn't true. You know, like, I'm, I don't know him. I'm not one of his disciples. And if what I'm saying is, is, is not true, God strike me dead. I mean, that's basically what he was saying. And it's such a, a sorry scene. I mean, when you think about it, Peter was the leader of the twelve. I mean, he was a spokesman for them. Jesus called him the rock. But it's, it's kind of, again, interesting to me how everything here today, it winds down. Maybe you're here and you're thinking bad about the Jews. How could they do that? Well, maybe you're also here and you're thinking bad about Peter. How could he do that? And we shake our heads and we say it's just pathetic, it, Prayerless Peter, right? I mean, how could he? But, but again, as we close, you know, how about us? Have we ever denied the Lord in any way? You know, it's interesting the way that the Lord worded it. He says, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you return, the Lord said, I want you to strengthen your brethren. You see, for us, what denying the Lord, I mean, it can come in so many ways. But it's when we, when we fail in our faith. You know, I think for all of us here, uh, failure is, is just something that we're, we're kind of, I guess, familiar with, huh? Have you ever failed the Lord? I mean, I have at home sometimes as a pastor as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a friend. We all have, right? And I'm not making light of it. I think in reading this right here, there's an element of, of hoping that it would be preventative, right? You know, wouldn't it be so cool if for the rest of our life we were not overconfident, we were not prayerless, we didn't fall out at a distance, and we refused to warm ourselves by the enemy's fire, and we, you know, didn't fail. Wouldn't that be cool? I think there's a part of it that's preventative. That's what God intends. But I think there's another part of it, this whole story about Peter, that's redemptive. It's redemptive. It's like if there's anyone here today who feels like they failed and it's over, that God's done with them, that, that that's not the way it works. That's not the God we serve. Peter turned, yes, but he also returned. 
And he came back to the Lord. And he repented of his sins. And he believed, and at the end of his life, he was crucified for his faith. And he wasn't even crucified right side up. They, he said, I'm not worthy. And they crucified him upside down. On the day of Pentecost, he was the spokesman. You see, there's a lesson for us. I think it's, hopefully you don't do this. You know, let's study this so we don't do this. But if we do, thank God for his grace. I always like that that passage in 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, these things are right to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know, I'm writing this so that you don't sin. That's the goal. But if you do, I want you to know that the Lord is on your side. You know, in closing, let's go to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 22, and and Luke gives us another detail in verse 60 and 62 when it all went down. And if you are able to go to Israel with us, you're going to actually see where this whole scene played out. You're going to see the high priest quarters, and you're going to see the stairs where they would have taken Jesus, and you're going to see the area where Peter was warming himself by the fire. Amazing, right? But, But as they're there and this all went down, when Peter was denying the Lord, look what it says in Luke 22 in, in, in verse 60. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Imagine that. I mean, there he is in the middle of denying him. And the Lord had been condemned, and now they're leading him to his next location And as he's denying him, the Lord was looking right at him. Wow. What kind of look do you think it was? Do you think it was a scowl? Who here thinks it was a scowl? No way. There's another time in the Bible where it says that the Lord looked at the the rich young ruler And he loved him. In his look, there was like a look of love. And I'm thoroughly convinced that that's that's the way the Lord looked at Peter. You know, and in that, what we find is that Peter, he wept. And in this case, the tears were, were good tears. And he went and he got his life right eventually. It took some time, you know, but he, I'm grateful that he didn't go away. I mean, he could have split. He could have, you know, just gone. But he was still with the, the apostles. He was still hanging out with them. And then the Lord just kept reaching out to him. You guys know the story. When he, when he rose uh, from the dead, the angels gave the message to the lady, say, oh, go tell the apostles and, and Peter. You know, make sure you tell Peter, Right? You know, and Peter came, and they're like still not believing. And then next thing you know, Peter said, I'm going fishing. Lord didn't give up on him, huh? In the Greek language, it's, uh, it's uh, an imperative. It means that I'm, I'm a fisherman now. I'm a fisher of fish. I'm done. I'm not going to follow and serve in the ministry anymore. 
But the Lord went looking for him again. Remember, he sat him down. He made him some fish tacos. And remember, he just said, hey, Peter, do you love me? Three times. And the Lord restored him to ministry. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. Take care of my church. Isn't that amazing? You see, that's the God that we serve. And I pray in looking at this that we would learn from these things. You know, I don't know where you're at in your relationship with God. Maybe, you know, you don't have one. Here's, here's a few things in closing. You know, I, I do think that we should look at these things and these trials and, and, you know, let's be fair. Let's not be impartial judges in life. Let's be just. So first word is fair. Another word is faithful. Wouldn't it be cool if we died with integrity, if we stayed on track, if we didn't deny the Lord at any time in our life? Wouldn't that be cool? To, to be fair, to be faithful. But at the end of the day, the, the most important thing is to be forgiven. Do you know the Lord? Have you placed your faith in Christ? Do you have a relationship with him that, that's the most important thing of all. And if you don't, or if you've gone away, then I pray that today you would make a decision in your heart. You know what? I'm going to serve the Lord. Uh, today I, I commit myself to him. I turn from my sins. I trust in Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm going to be a committed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I've found, and a lot of people have struggles in so many areas of their life, is that when you get your relationship with God right, everything else falls into place. One last thing. I, I think it's kind of interesting, the whole rooster part of the story. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting because, um, you know, what do roosters do? If you think about it, they wake you up. Huh. I was thinking about that, man, because... I was looking online, I'm like, they're, they're, scientists have done studies about roosters, and uh, they were wondering, why do roosters crow? And so they started, you know, putting them in dark and just different things, and what they found about roosters is that they have this inherent, this is the way God made them. They have this inherent quality about them that, that actually it crows at a certain clock, a certain time. They say that roosters will begin crowing right about two hours before Dawn. They just know it. They have it. It's the way God made them. You know, I remember a while back, we had a neighbor that had a rooster right next to us. And so he would crow every morning. And it drove my wife crazy, man. So I won't tell you, but she called somebody up on them because I guess it's illegal to have roosters there, you know. <laughs> and so anyways, you know, um, here's the thing. Maybe there's someone here today that in all reality, you're sleeping. In your, in your walk, in your relationship with God, and God just, he wants the rooster to crow, man. He wants to wake you up to his calm, to his life, even to his cross. The, the cross for you, even the cross in you.